Thank you, Jody and Steve. Appreciate that. Get my stuff together here. Thanks, man. You know, uh, something that's really going to be too bad about ha having the one service over the next month. I, I don't know if you guys know this, but, you know, sermon always gets better second service, right? You know, for first time, that's just like dry run. And, uh, you know, so just, just, just like the wine at Cana, we, we say the best for last here. And uh, that's, that's going to be, uh, be too bad here over the next month. But, okay, I guess I'm, I'm not preaching again So in, the, in that month. So um, I'll be for Troy to figure out, I guess. All right, so we are back in Isaiah today. We've been looking at Isaiah all summer long. Uh, I hope it's been good for you. I, Isaiah, it's a challenging book, um, but it's a beautiful book. Uh, beautiful pictures of the gospel in Isaiah. Som sometimes called the fifth gospel uh, because of its clear, clear pictures of, of who Jesus is. And what we've done uh, to try to sort of organize the book, we broke it down to three big sections. And um, we're just doing a little pop quiz right now. And if you guys don't get it right, then we're just going to do the whole series over again this fall. So no, no stress. Um, so first 37 chapters of, of the book of Isaiah, uh, Troy's been saying there's kind of one, one dominant theme, one dominant image of God. And what is that? God is a, oh no, no, first 37, oh, it's close. First 37 chapters, God is, now, now you're worried you can get it wrong. You just got to be brave. What's the first big theme in Isaiah? God as a, God as a king, I heard it somewhere. I heard it, God is king, yes, that's good. Admittedly, conquering God, king, it's a similar thing. God is king. We see in those first 37 chapters of Isaiah, uh, God is sovereign. God has authority. God rules over the nations, rules over his people. Um, we see that over and over again in those chapters. Okay, then there's a big, there's a big transition in, in Isaiah. Very uh, big change in, in how the book's written, the, the style, uh, the structure of it. And from about chapter 38 or so until about chapter 55, uh, we've been looking the last couple weeks at a different theme. What's, what's kind of the major theme that we've been, been looking at over the last few weeks? God as what? Servant. There you go. A plus. All right. God as servant. And, and more, more precisely, God is going to appoint a servant to do his will. Right? That, that's the theme of, of those, those chapters. And Troy has showed you uh, some of those the last few weeks. Um, and, and what's interesting, of course, what's, what's unique and probably very challenging for those first hearers of that is that this servant of God He's not going to bring about God's will at the point of a spear like every other king they've ever known. God's servant is going to bring about his will with humility and with suffering. He's going to bring justice, but he's going to do it without making a sound, it's said. He's going to be so gentle, he's not going to even break a reed or snuff out a candle. God's kingdom is going to be inaugurated by this servant experiencing suffering, by being wounded for the transgressions of his people. Right? That must have been a little bit baffling for, for those original hearers, I can imagine. Right? We have the benefit of 2,700 years of history to look back and understand how Jesus fulfilled those promises of God's servant. Right? But hard for them, I think. So, middle section of Isaiah, about God's servant. And now today, we're starting the last section of, of the book, um, um, which, which turns again and has the theme more of God as conqueror. God is a conqueror for his people. And we'll see a few ways that, that plays out in the in a couple of chapters we're looking at today. Okay, so we have again this outrageously large section of Scripture we're going to go through today, four chapters of Isaiah in 30 minutes, no problem. So why don't you turn with me, Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to kind of read one section of Scripture from each of the four chapters and just kind of touch on them each briefly, and we'll, we'll try and see some of these themes that come out. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 56, I'm starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, 
For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will yet gather, I will yet, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. Okay, great little passage of scripture. Uh, in this first set of verses, Isaiah gives us a picture of what God's new kingdom is going to look like. God is going to come and be the conqueror, and this is now the reality of the new kingdom under a conquering God. In the same way that some of those previous chapters about the suffering servant must have been difficult for the original hearers to comprehend and understand, I expect that some of uh, what's written here in Isaiah 56 also would have been difficult for them to appreciate and comprehend and understand. And uh, to understand why, we have to understand a little bit more about these kind of two groups of people that the passage introduces, the eunuchs and the foreigners, all right? So we're going to dive in and talk about those. Here we go. So eunuchs, as you may know, uh, are men who've been castrated. And they can therefore no longer father children. And it was a practice carried out sometimes on, on slaves or on prisoners of war. And you can imagine that in, in an honor and shame culture like Israel, uh, a culture that values family and fertility and you know, finding your name in those long lists of genealogies, uh, being unable to raise a family, that's, that's like deeply shameful. Uh, it means you are almost like literally worthless. Like you, you can't do the most basic thing that that uh, a man is supposed to be able to do. From their perspective, a eunuch you know, is going to ultimately be cut off from society. He's going he's to have no children to take care of him when he's old. He's not going to have anyone to pass on his wisdom to. He's going to have no one that's going to remember him when he's dead. Yes, they're living in a place of deep shame. And what does God say to the eunuch? It's really powerful. It's not just, you too are welcome in my kingdom. It's a lot more than that. Look at verse 5. God says, I will give you a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give you a name that can never be cut off. God, God is saying, you know, that, that status as, as a man and a father that you believe is going to give you identity and purpose and value in the world, uh, come and find that in me instead. Don't find your identity in your own name. Find it in my name. All right, the shame, the stigma that you feel because of who you are, in my kingdom, that's gone because I am the conquering king of the universe. I, I can lavishly give gifts to my children, gifts that are better than sons and daughters and a family. Right? That's an incredible promise from God. And the foreigner then gets similar treatment. You know, consider that like all of Israelite society is ordered around the family. Right? The basic unit of organization is the tribe, the, the family group. Everybody knows which of the 12 tribes of Israel they belong to. And we even see in the Old Testament that certain roles in society were defined by which tribe you came from. The 
priests in the temple were Levites. We know that the promised Messiah uh, is said to become from the tribe of Judah. So you can imagine how a, a foreigner feels coming into that context. What's my role in society? Where, where do I belong? It feels like I'm missing kind of the key element. I don't, I don't have the bloodline that's required to be part of this people group. And God answers that very directly in this passage. He, he says, no, the, the key thing is not what family you come from. It's that you've chosen to join yourself to me. That's verse 6. It says, if you trust me, if you hold on to my covenant, if you keep the Sabbath, that's the essential thing. It's your faith and it's your obedience that forms your core identity, not your nationality, your skin color, or how long you've lived on the banks of the Jordan River. And I really like how God makes that point really explicitly in verse 7. It's kind of a cool little thing. He kind of draws these like concentric rings to, to show how intimately he wants to welcome the foreigner into his family. Did you, did you kind of catch that? First, he says in verse 7, just have a look at it there. He says, first, he's going to bring them to my holy mountain. That's like Jerusalem. It's like his city. He's welcoming them into the city. And then he says, I'm going to make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. And then finally, he says, their sacrifices will be accepted on his altar. That, that is the very core of the Jewish religious experience. God is saying that in his kingdom, he is making, going to make no distinction between persons. His family is for everybody. Now, we could probably think of a lot of applications uh, out of this chapter. I two that I think kind of fall off the page pretty easily. Uh, number one, I just want to say, if you feel like you are that outsider, if you feel like you are that ostracized person, if you are living a life of shame of some kind, or you feel like your life is meaningless or doesn't have value, then take heart. The God of the universe, the God who placed the stars and calls them all by name, he values you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is pursuing you. He doesn't want you to find your identity in the shipwreck of your life, if that's what you think your life has become. He says, hey, find your identity in me. That thing that you long for that you do not have, that spouse or that relationship or that fulfilling career, uh, whatever those things are, he says, listen, my love and my family, it's better than that. That takes faith to believe, doesn't it? Right? When we, when we uh, are longing for things that we feel like are missing, when we are grieving maybe things that we've lost, it takes faith to trust that God has a plan to, to allow him to satisfy us with his presence. That's the call of the Christian life. I think it's interesting here that both the eunuch and the foreigner are called to keep the Sabbath. That's interesting, isn't it? What, what does that mean? It means to rest in God, to trust God to provide for us rather than us providing for ourselves. Right? It's a fundamentally an act of faith, an act of trust. So you are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. His family is the best identity we have. We need to believe that. We need to live that out. Second application that I think is also pretty clear from the text here is that if God is in the business of welcoming foreigners into his family, of making his house a house of prayer for all people, then we should be about this too. And Alan has already helpfully preached that part of the sermon for me 10 minutes ago, so thank you, Alan. I can just kind of you know, skip through here. No. So, um, uh, you know, we have a variety of ways we try to do that around here. Uh, number one, maybe you've uh, seen our bulletin board out in the foyer of all the missionaries that we support here at CBC. We, we want to see the gospel go to every corner of the globe. Well, I would just encourage you, you know, do, do you know any of our missionaries? Do you pray for them? Do you financially support one of them? Uh, if you're not 
doing those things, let me tell you, our missions committee would love to make some introductions for you. All right? they, they are part of our family. They are part of our CVC family, and they are out helping us to take our local church body and, and uh, make it global, to spread it to every corner of the earth. All right? That's one way we can kind of live out this vision uh, of the global family that we see in Isaiah 56. And then it's also in service of this vision that we do things like Mission Minneapolis that Alan just talked about. Uh, you know, here in the upper Midwest, uh, a lot of us are kind of, you know, corn-fed boys like me. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but as, as Alan said, hey, we, we got the world on our doorstep, you know, less than 100 miles away. That is fantastic. And you don't even have to go that far, right? Closer to home. We've got a big Somali community up in Rice Lake. Uh, in Eau Claire, we have um, Hmong and African-American, Latino communities. Uh, we have all kinds of opportunities to live out this vision uh, uh, of God's kingdom that we see here in, in Isaiah 56. And the challenge, of course, is that uh, doing that can be hard work. If you spent time talking with somebody who um, has been involved in cross-cultural ministry, uh, it's not easy. You know, it's not just a matter of different food and dress and how long should a serv- uh, church service be. You know, it's also sometimes really different perspectives on issues. Right? It really requires some humility, some listening, some understanding that some people have had different experiences than we have, and that, that, that uh, changes how they kind of perceive the world, how they look at things. You know, it can be a hard thing to kind of walk that path with somebody. Um, but it's a good work. It's, it's the hard work of the church. And as Alan said before, you know, it's, it's a picture we see at the end of the Bible, right? Every tribe and tongue and nation, there's not going to be a single one missing, right? Well, what a glorious promise that is. And so it's our privilege then, uh, you know, in our day, in our age, in the place we've been put, to try and help to, to help realize that vision. All right, so let's be a church that, that loves to reach out and, and to grow alongside brothers and sisters who who have different backgrounds from us. All right, that is the Cliff Notes version of Isaiah 56. Then the text takes a pretty sharp turn, and I think this is one of the things that makes Isaiah maybe a little bit challenging to study sometimes, is some of these different kind of oracles or passages, they're just kind of stacked right next to each other, and it's kind of like, okay, how do, you know, how do we get from A to B there? Um, Isaiah just kind of jumps into a new topic here, and let me kind of try and maybe see the, the flow of the logic. So the first part of 56 is this kind of vision of the coming kingdom. And then the end of chapter 56, um, which I did not read, Isaiah really kind of excoriates the, the leaders of Israel, saying, hey, you are not being faithful leaders. You are not seeking this vision of God's kingdom. You are seeking your own vision. You're seeking your own pleasure. You're seeking your own purposes. And then because the leaders of Israel are being unfaithful, being poor shepherds, the people then are falling into all kinds of bad practices, all kinds of idolatry and other things. And God kind of takes them to task for that in chapter 57. So give us just a little picture of that. I'm going to read uh, the first six verses of Isaiah 57. Here we go. It says, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman? Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering and have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? All right, I'm just kind of grabbing this little section out of a a longer chapter, but 
some really strong language there and probably some images, uh, metaphors that maybe aren't really clear to us. So let me just give a couple minutes here of kind of the context of this passage. What, you know, what on earth is Isaiah referring to, right? What have you people done that's so terrible? Well, the Israelite people, in the several hundreds of years that they lived in the land of Palestine, before the Babylonian exile, which the book of Isaiah is leading up to, uh, they, at different times, adopted many religious practices from their pagan neighbors, right? Lots and lots of examples through the Old Testament of Israel running off to worship foreign gods, to worship idols. Uh, one of those religions was a kind of series of fertility cults that worshiped the god Baal and other idols too. And the idea of the fertility cult, uh, in essence, is that if you come into the temple or the place of worship, and if you have sex with a prostitute there, then that is going to encourage the gods themselves to be fertile, and they will let the crops grow and the rain fall and the cattle be fat. All right, so that is one kind of idolatry that Israel fell into many times. Then there's another type of pagan practice, which is kind of the opposite. It's basically a death cult. And it was most commonly associated with the god Moloch, and it included this barbaric practice of child sacrifice. And here in Isaiah 57, Isaiah is calling out both of these practices, both of these groups. This statement in verse 5 about burning with lust among the oaks, that's almost surely a reference to these fertility cults and their practices. And then there's a subsequent statement about slaughtering your children in the valleys. That's very obviously a reference to these death cults. And, and the people, some, some of the people anyway, they've, they've been totally captivated by this stuff. Right? They, they've taken their offerings, which should have gone to the temple, which should have gone uh, to Yahweh, and instead they're offering them to these false gods. That's verse 6. Okay, and because of this, God is angry. His statement at the end of verse 6, shall I relent for these things? That is rhetorical. The answer is no. Uh, he is not going to relent. He is going to bring judgment on Israel for this disobedience. That is one of the main points of the whole book of Isaiah. He is not going to let Judah live in their sins forever. It is an abomination to him. And I just want to take a minute uh, here to kind of talk about this, this idea of God being angry and wrathful and distributing judgment. Because there's a lot of passages like that in Isaiah. And sometimes, I think if we're honest, they kind of make us twitch. You know, like that's not like the picture of God that we first want to come to our minds. Uh, so I just want to kind of offer two bits of food for thought here as we kind of think through and try to understand passages like this. All right, number one, what the people are doing here, it is fundamentally breaking their covenant with God. God has established the nation of Israel to be a unique nation, set apart for his glory, and they are taking that and just throwing that in the trash. Look back at chapter 56. What did God ask of both the eunuch and the foreigner? He says, hold fast my covenant. God is the proper object of their worship and ours. And giving our worship to someone or something else, it fundamentally breaks that identity. So it is right for God to be angry about that. All right, second, and maybe this is obvious, but I think it just is so clear in this particular text, uh, God is right to be angry because these things, these sins, they hurt people. These fertility cults, they took generations of young girls and turned them into sex slaves. The death cults are literally murdering their own babies. It, it is pure evil. How, how could that not arouse God's anger? I mean, what would we prefer? A God who looked the other way? You know, oh, there they go, off among the oaks, good for them. No, no, it's not good for them. Sin, sin leaves a wide trail of wreckage wherever we let it flourish. It was true then, it's true now. 
You know, some sins like murder and stealing, we, we can, it's easy to see how it hurts other people and why that's wrong. But even sins that we think are just in our own heart, our, our pride, our, our lust, our greed, our anger, uh, those things also hurt our relationships with other people. They dull our sensitivity to God's spirit. Uh, they warp our view of reality. Right? Of course God wants to bring an end to those things. He loves us. Okay? God's anger, it's just the flip side of his compassion. He wants to remove from our lives the things that are killing us. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why the Bible talks so much about sin and idolatry. He's not trying to rob us of fun or freedom or something. He's trying to help us grow, to know him, to become his children. Because he cares about us. And that's different from our anger. When you and I, when we get angry, right, a lot of times that's coming out of a place of bitterness or envy or exhaustion or, you know, hatred or something. Um, but when God gets angry, it's, it's a righteous anger. It means it comes from a right place and it's focused on our good. So when we read these passages, uh, you know, we need to maybe, maybe twitch less about God's wrath, maybe twitch a little bit more about maybe our own indifference to some of those same tendencies that we might have. That's, that's a better response, I think, on our part to passages like this. Okay, well, God has a few more hard words for the people of Judah. Uh, if chapter 57 is directed at those that have really just completely abandoned the covenant uh, by going to idolatry, then chapter 58 is directed instead at those who think they're keeping the covenant just fine. Uh, maybe hard for you and me to identify with running off to the woods to you know, worship an idol, but in the next chapter here, the bullseye is squarely on those of us who get up on Sunday morning and brush our teeth and sit in the pews and sing the songs and take notes during the sermon. All right, so you ready for this? Here we go. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 10. This one's for us. It says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Okay, intense passage, right? Uh, a little context first. What, what is going on? So in Judah at this time, not everyone is out in the woods worshiping pagan gods. Uh, there are also committed individuals 
who are working hard to follow the rules of Judaism. They are offering sacrifices. They are observing the feast days. They are participating in the rituals like fasting to show their devotion to Yahweh. And their devotion, I think, is genuine. I mean, look at verse 2. It says they delight to know God's ways. They, they believe all the right things, but their actions don't match their words and beliefs. They're willing to deny their body food, which, by the way, in kind of an agrarian and manual labor society, that is a much bigger deal for them than it is maybe for us in the 21st century. Much harder for them to go without food for a day or two than for us. They will do all of that in order to please God. But along the way, they've developed a kind of a, a tunnel vision on their faith. And that tunnel vision, it kind of manifests itself in, in two ways. Um, number one, uh, it's, uh, they're being selective about which commands of the Torah they're going to obey and not. They'll keep the Sabbath, they'll observe the fasts, but then they go out and fight with each other and cheat their workers. Right? They're content to have Yahweh as their God as long as they get to be the ultimate arbiters of what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, the text says. They'll do those hard and devout things as long as they get to decide what faithfulness looks like and doesn't look like. Second, they develop tunnel vision because they have lost the ability for their devotion to God to be turned into care and concern for their neighbors. They have personalized their faith to an extent where they believe their only responsibility to God is to maintain their religious observances. As if their faith is, is purely an individual exercise, uh, as, as if they have no responsibility to those around them. God has very strong language for them, doesn't he? And look at verse 6. He says, Is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What does God mean when he says, is this not the fast that I choose? Remember that their fasting is a way to show devotion to God. So God is saying, if you want to show me you're devoted, that your faith is genuine, then care for the vulnerable and the poor around you. Where there's oppression, help to alleviate it. Undo the straps of the yoke. I think that's a beautiful image. Undo the straps of the yoke. The things that are weighing people down, the circumstances of life that are crushing them, you help to undo those things. That's what I want from you. That's, that's an actual act of devotion to me. Why, why is this so important to God? Why, why is he so adamant here in rejecting this form of religion that is unaccompanied by care and concern for the vulnerable and the poor? I, I would submit to you that in this chapter, just like in chapter 57, his anger here is motivated by his compassion. He loves the poor. He loves the dispossessed. All right, the scandal of the gospel is that the more lost we are, the harder God comes looking for us. That is true in a spiritual sense with our sin. I think it's also true in a physical sense. He wants to see people clothed and uh, fed and liberated from oppression. Right? That is abundantly clear in this chapter. And it is the great mystery of God, you guys, that time and again in Scripture, he calls us to join us in his work, right? Whether that's sharing the gospel, building a church, feeding the hungry, God wants us to make his priorities our priorities. That's how we show we're devoted to him. All right? If that's the case, uh, you know, what should our response be to that? I mean, let's just be practical for a minute and just acknowledge that there's no way 
that uh, we, all of us, are going to tackle every like social problem out there, right? I mean, just in our country alone, we have the scourge of abortion, we have the effects of racism, we have poverty and sex trafficking and migrants at our borders and chemical dependency and people with lead in their drinking water. And I mean, you could just, you know, the list can just go on and on forever. It's kind of overwhelming. So let me just kind of suggest a couple things here we can do to be obedient to this passage. Uh, number one, we can't work on every issue, but we can get educated, we can get involved on one issue. All right, do, do something. Um, and I'll give you a practical example. If you'd like to get a little better educated about poverty, about how, how to help alleviate poverty without creating dependency, uh, I want to recommend to you a book that's been really helpful for me. Uh, it's called When Helping Hurts. Uh, Steve Corbett and Brian uh, Thickert, I think this is probably 15 years old now, this book or so. Uh, it's in the church library. Of course, you can get it online too. And uh, it was just really helpful for me in thinking through, you know, how do we um, help people in ways that are going to be beneficial to them in the long run, not just in the short term, right? How do we build relationships and not just write checks? And um, yeah, re really, really thoughtful in a lot of different ways. So um, if that's an issue you'd like to get involved in, that's, that's a great place to start. Okay, there's lots of other good resources out there too, of course. Uh, so so fi find one, one thing to, to be involved in. Uh, second, a way we can be obedient to this passage, I think we can just encourage each other in the convictions that God's put on our hearts. You know, something that I just need to be honest and say I think is a little bit maybe unhealthy right now in American Christianity is um, sometimes I see this out, out there, we kind of build up, you know, one or two social issues as like the most important ones. And then sometimes there's even then kind of a downplaying or, or a pushing back on other Christians who maybe uh, are working to alleviate other issues. All right, that's uh, not to say, of course, that every issue is of equal importance, uh, certainly not. But let's just recognize that there's a long list of things and we've been gifted differently as brothers and sisters and God's going to put different issues on our hearts. So let's just be, you know, cheerleaders for each other. Let's, let's support each other in those things. Um, and let's, let, let's see the gospel advance in, in, in all those ways. All right, and then third, uh, if Isaiah 58 is convicting to you, if you think maybe, hey, maybe I've developed a little bit of that tunnel vision too, um, then I just want to encourage you to pray. Uh, I, I know I th I've shared this story before, I think, but there was a point in my life uh, when I was in college where God really put it on my heart that I, I really lacked compassion for people, like in, in a serious way. And uh, I, I prayed about that in a concerted way for, for months. And, uh, you know, ha have I arrived? N no, I mean, I, I can still be very selfish and inwardly focused and lazy and prideful and all those things, okay? But God has worked in me in it. God, 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 has, God has moved me towards him in that. Uh, and that, that, that came through prayer. It came, came through me acknowledging that, that, that I was not living my life uh, in the way God wanted me to in that area. All right, so God, God does that. God works uh, in our prayers. Okay, that's Isaiah 58. I'm going to end, we're getting out of time here. I'm going to end by reading the last half of Isaiah 59. I always just struggle a little bit. These, these passages where, you know, it can feel like there's a lot of, hey, I need to be doing this, I need to be doing this, I need to be doing this. And it can feel like a burden. And it can feel like, hey, I've just got this long list of obligations now to do. And that's not what the passage is trying to communicate. I, I have some good news for you. You are not the conquering warrior who's going to bring about God's kingdom. All right? God is asking you to participate in him with it, but you are not actually at the center of the story. And that's what Isaiah 59 talks about. So I'm just going to kind of rip this bleeding out of its context. You can go back and read the whole chapter later. I'm going to start at verse 14 and read to the end of, of chapter 59. God is surveying 
this world, uh, this nation of Israel, which is unfaithful to him in so many ways. And here's what he has to say. He says, justice has turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that an incredible passage, right? God will bring about justice. We do not have to be um, uh, the, the, the soldiers that, that execute God's wrath, right? God will bring about his judgment in his time. And more importantly, uh, not only is there judgment offered here in this passage, but there is hope and there is redemption and it is coming from him. And what does he give us to partner with him in that work? What does it say in verse 21? He gives us his spirit and he gives us his word. Those are the tools that we have. As we seek to be more obedient, as we seek to live out this uh, uh, life and this vision that we see in these chapters of Isaiah, what he gives us is, first of all, his spirit, which we need to be sensitive to and praying for sensitivity to. And we, need, and we have his word, which we need to be immersed in and know and believe and follow. Those are the tools we have. That's how we can live this life, how we can join the kingdom of the conqueror. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful uh, for all, all the words of your scripture, those that are easy for us to digest and those that are more challenging. And we just pray that you would do your work in our hearts by your spirit, God, to help us to be obedient, to be the people you've called us to be, to recognize you as the conquering God who is bringing his kingdom. And Lord, help us to know our part in doing that, in living out faithfully uh, the things you've given us. Thank you, Father, for it. In your name, amen.